Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We are needy. We cannot, I cannot speak. We cannot hear your word apart from your spirit. As we're studying as men from Pastor Glenn Meldrum's study about the letter preaching kills, Lord. And myself, all I can do is bring death, but in your spirit there is life. We want life. We want you. We want more of you. We want more of your glory manifest. So whatever you need to do with us, men, however you need to change us, whatever we need to surrender, whatever spiritual eyes we need opened, ears in tune to you, Lord, make it so. Have your way. Jesus, you deserve all acclaim and reward. You deserve the reward for your suffering. And we're here before you. We saying we want your will to be done. We're earnest, but we need your help to be even more earnest to seek you. And we trust you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the book of James. And uh, I'm going to need the Lord's help. I have 17 pages here. And I pared it down. And, uh, but the Lord knows what, needs, what we need to hear about. We talked a little bit last week about trials. And Pastor Jeff mentioned about the importance of us seeking wisdom. So we're going to start on verse 5, James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So it seems pretty obvious. If you lack wisdom, you can ask God. What kind of wisdom is God imparting? God is always wanting us to focus on the eternal. God is always wanting us to focus on things that have an eternal impact. God is spirit and truth. The wisdom he's asking is always going to be something that brings him glory. It's always going to be something that has us focused on the eternal. So in the asking, we focus on the eternal, but his imparting will be something that will be eternally minded, will be spiritually focused. Sometimes we ask wisdom for things that we want. That is not the Lord's priority. He's a good father. I'm not saying he doesn't give us good things. He absolutely does. But the best thing the Lord wants to give us is wisdom that impacts spiritually, that blesses us, yes, for what we need, but we don't live here for ourselves. It's also for the blessings of others. So in the trial that we may be going through when we talked about last week, we can ask of wisdom. And the wisdom he's going to give us is going to push us always to him, to seek him, to give him glory, and build things that have a spiritual, eternal impact. So it says, you know, he gives generously, liberally, freely. There's different messages. So, you know, sometimes we struggle. I don't know what to do next. What do you want from me, Lord? What am I supposed to do? I don't know. And we don't get what we want. It says liberally, so how come we don't have our answer? The problem is not in the Lord. 
The problem is never in the Lord. It's always within us. There's something that God wants to do within us. He may want us to be more earnest in our seeking and diligence. He may want us to do some things, to surrender, to trust. We may be asking incorrectly. We may be asking wisdom in the wrong thing because he wants us to focus on something else. It says here, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. What faith is he talking about? He's talking about faith in Christ, faith in the Word of God, faith in God. Not faith in ourselves, not faith in what we want, in our desires. It's always going to be something. Remember that again, over and over. And the thing, it says here, okay, but he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Okay? There's a Greek word here that I'm going to share. It's called diakrinominos. Diakrinominos. Okay? And that's the word when it talks about somebody who's doubting, when they use the word unstable. Double-minded, or even the word that I like is two-souled. Two souls is the word that's used. One soul that's earthly focused, and the other one that's eternally focused. What God's asking us if we want wisdom is we have to be singly minded. We don't get what we want because we're doubly minded. We're thinking of ourselves, what we want, and not always of what the Lord wants. God is, why is God interested in only the eternal? Because he knows this will all pass away. He knows the eternal is all that's going to last. He knows that's the very best for us. Again and again, it will always be. So if we're double-minded, if our faith is not in Jesus, if we're wavering back and forth between our desires and what the Lord wants, we're not going to get the answer we like. We may not get any wisdom until our hearts are right. So therein lies the challenge. So anytime when it talks about, it says in the Word here, about a mirror, and we'll get to that. But let me, before we go to that, please turn to Proverbs chapter 4, verses 5 to 13. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget, nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, that's wisdom, and she, wisdom, will preserve you. Love her and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. Exalt her and she will promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. She will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory she will deliver to you. Hear, my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. And when you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. Now, whether it's Solomon who was writing in Proverbs at that time, or another, we don't know for sure. But the wisdom they're talking about, that Sophia that they're talking about, is the wisdom of the eternal. The wisdom they're talking about is not temporal. What you're getting hold of is godly wisdom that changes us. And when he talks about long life, we're talking about eternal life. We have to look at through the lens of eternity. If you look at it only for what you want, you will be disappointed. We will all be disappointed. So to get wisdom, what's our condition that we need to have? We need to be humble. In Mark 9.24, there's a man who went to Jesus. He said, I believe. Help my unbelief. When it talks about faith in Jesus in the midst of wisdom, we need to press in even more. There's an expectation that God has on us 
to seek him earnestly and diligently. He wants to impart wisdom. He speaks to us. But he wants to do something that's a change. There's not going to be something that we're going to get from him without there being a change within us. He's ever trying to make us more like Christ. So it says, do you believe that God can give you wisdom and then he will do it as you, if you ask him? This is what Spurgeon says. Then go at once to him and say, Lord, this is what I need. Specify your wants, state your exact condition, lay the whole case before God with as much orderliness as if you were telling your story to an intelligent friend who was willing to hear it. And prepare to help you and then say, Lord, this is specifically what I think I want, and I ask this of thee, believing that thou canst give it to me. Spurgeon says that's what's doubting. Is uh, saying it without doubting, but I don't think that's enough. We're thinking we want to ask that we can just ask for what we want. Spurgeon has said before, and he says, and the word says, it needs to be something that's asking, Lord, what do you want? What is it that I need to know about what you want in this situation? What is your will? As Jesus said in the garden, not my will, but thy will be done. Okay. Let's move to verses 9 to 11. James says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as flowers of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. I've had the privilege of going to Israel. And one of the things you'll know is it's much of it is semi-arid pretty desert-like, kind of like parts of California. And you'll see things where it'll have a little rain and things will suddenly sprout out. Okay? And there'll be green shoots of grass and things will come up. But there's this southern heated wind called the Kassoon, and it comes from the southeast, and it's so hot when the sun shines that within that very day, the grass is faded away. And James is painting the picture, he being a Jew and speaking in Jerusalem, because they can see that. That's what he's talking about, is that the things that we have in the material stuff is fleeting. All of it will burn up. And we look within ourselves, and I've shared this before at church, that we think, oh, so-and-so, you know, Bill Gates, he's the rich man. I'm the poor man. That is not true. We are all the rich men by the ways of all of mankind throughout history, by the ways of the world now, and I've shared before, this applies to us. We don't have to worry about our food tomorrow. We don't have to worry about the shelter over our head. So, The rich exalts in humiliation, realizing his lowly condition, that apart from Christ, he has nothing. The poor man exalts, knowing that no matter what his poverty is, he has Christ. He has everything. And apart from Christ, we have nothing. With Christ, we have everything. So both are equal at the cross. And one of the things I was challenged in reading things about James is when you go through the whole book and you listen, and I've listened to it a number of times, is there's times he mentions things, then he jumps around to something else, just like we've done now, and then he jumps back. And I wondered, why is it haphazard, it seemed to me? What? Like, and that's why they say it's like Proverbs, and it's just these statements that come out of the blue. I don't think that that's so. I really think James had a plan with it. He realized, like with all of us, we can only take so much at one time. 
And he spoke in a way that people could receive. So in the first chapter of James, he says gently about the rich. Hey, don't think so much of yourself. Consider everybody equal. And then you'll see, we'll come back to him talking about status again in the next chapter and further chapters down. And he gives a little bit of the time, continually trying to be sensitive to how much can some one person take at one time. And the Lord is very much like that. We wonder why he doesn't tell us everything about everything all at once. Because we're not prepared to receive it. How do we get prepared to be receive what the Lord wants? We have to be earnest. We're going to talk a little bit further about what it means and what that heart is. So I want you to pay attention to that. Isaiah 40, verse 6 to 8. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. James knew that when he spoke to that. He knew what has permanence. We have to remember in each moment those things that are essential. We get caught up with everything that's happening in front of us right now. What's going to happen tomorrow? Where am I going to go? What's going to, what am I going to do? What am I going to eat tonight? All the things that we get caught up. And he says, all this will pass. Solomon said that in Ecclesiastes. The word of our God stands forever. And we know in John chapter 1, Jesus is also the word. Our life is uncertain. And we're vulnerable. Something can happen in a moment. Our wealth is fleeting. So James saying, look, put your trust in something that's permanent. Do we really do that? So I want you to go to the next. We're going to move a little bit. He talks about now about temptation. And while I kind of wish James chapter 1 verse 12 was at the, near the beginning like the other part, there's a value in this right after what we did, and I'll connect the dots. Blessed is the man who endures temptation for which he has been approved. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So one hand he talks about rich, know your status and the poor. But then he says, look, further along the idea of what is your attitude about being eternally focused is when you're enduring temptation. At the beginning you talk about trials, right? Trials, God allows. Temptations come from what? Where do temptations come from? Hmm? Our own desires. Our own desires. Yeah. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It comes from ourselves. So, one of the things we have to realize is it doesn't say if you're tempted. But when? That every single one of us will be tempted. And if you look back, blessed is the man reminds us of the Beatitudes where it talks about those to pursue. So there is, when you're blessed, when you endure, when you persevere, when you focus on eternity and decide, I'm going to forego the present, the temporal, for the benefit of what I have hold in the future, I'll get the crown of life. Crown. So I'm going to talk about two things. That crown, the ancient word is Stephanos. There were four different types of crowns you could get. The crown of flowers, which is worn at weddings. You see brides with flowers on them. Different ones had it, both male and female, at different weddings and joy and festivities. There's crowns, obviously, that you've seen kings wear, royalty. Typically, we see those of gold, but they've been of linen and um, different... Um, um, different kinds of metals. There's the laurel crown, crown of leaves made of the laurel tree that's typically given when you win a race that you see that at the Olympic Games, going back to Greek times. Okay. And there's a crown that's used as a term to indicate 
your honor and dignity. So children may be your crown, or that may be your crown, referring to things that you had honor and dignity, and it talks about that in Proverbs as well. Or it may talk about when you lose the crown, then lamentations going to fall from your head. So there's the crown of glory that you will get. There's a crown of life, it says here, that you will get. What's that life? That life is eternal. And there's... Actually, what will happen with all our crowns when we're in heaven? We'll be laying them at Jesus' feet. In a heartbeat. Because we'll be so in awe of that. Yes, it's good to have the crowns. I'm not saying that those aren't things. But that's not the goal. Don't get caught up in getting rewards. That's our focus. The earthly focus is, I want a reward for what I do. I want my gold star. I want my trophy. I want the lottery. I want this reward. There's only one who really deserves reward. It's the one who did all. And we talk about that and the Moravians talk about that as the Lamb who deserves the reward for our suffering. He's the one that we'll be laying our crowns for. So, I want you to go back and talk about what it means about being approved. The Greek word for that is dokimos, and that approval, the thing that will give Jesus reward is when we are cleansed and pure, pure before Him as He cleans us, unblemished. So that word approved, dokimos, means like when you take a metal, and I was reading about that, and you take away and you heat it up and you get this impurities out, the slag as they call it. And you take that away and you're left, all the alloys gone, you're left with the pure metal. That's what it means to be approved, that we are purified. So when you are persevering, and when you endure temptation, when you persevere in the trial, when you endure in temptation, you're becoming tested and approved. You're showing God you believe Him. You're becoming cleansed. You're becoming a man of character, of depth, of substance. The converse is also true. When you don't and you give in, you're becoming shallow, flyweight, mist, vapor. Now, it's not condemnation. I'm not trying to do that to condemn you. I'm trying to do that. There is a value in doing that. But again, it has to be eternally focused. So one, I just one more thing about the crown of life. The only other reference to the crown of life is in Revelations 2.10 when Jesus is speaking to the church of Smyrna. And he says, Do not fear any of those things for which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, but that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So when we're talking about, in James chapter 1, about enduring under trial, and now in verse 12, about enduring under temptation, it will be a crown, that life will be eternal. But it may be a trial unto death. Are we willing to do that? So, why does he say we do it? Because it says here, he's promised something for us, for those who love him. The reason to do that is love. As Jesus has loved us, do we love the same? Are we willing to love him that we're going to go, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to take that drink. I'm not going to look at that website. I'm not going to go there. Because what you have to offer is so much greater. And you have loved me. How can I show I love you? If 
by obeying my commands, Jesus said. That's how you show you love him. Not out of fear of man. Not because of the consequences. You don't go the speed limit because you're afraid the police are going to catch you. It's always a good test to know, does your speed change when the police cars, do you see the police car? Do you suddenly hit the brakes when you hit the, when you see the police car there? Right? That's fear of man, right? Fear of the consequence. Fear of temporal suffering. Do we love God? So we've talked about temptation, right? Verses 13 to 16. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, each of us may have different temptations. Alcohol has never been a temptation for me. If I put a glass in front of me, I won't make a pass or take it. It didn't matter to me before. Okay? But, obviously, I had sinned with sexual sin, looking at inappropriate sites. That was a temptation. But that desire was within me. And then when something comes up, an image or something like that, it's like a hook and it pulls at me. So we have to, how do we do that? So we have to know that it's within us. And when that desire is conceived, is when I'm thinking or when we're dwelling about it and wishing, oh, I wish I had that, or passing by liquor stores or whatever way that's your temptation, talks about it gives birth to sin. We act out of the sin, and when that's full grown, that means when we fully indulge it, it will kill. It kills our spirit. It kills our relationships. We become hearts that are hardened to stone, and we will die. One of the challenges we have is... Each of us sometimes thinks when we have trials, why is God doing that to me? Like this expectation that God should instantly rescue us from that. Why is God making me suffer? That's not fair. This shouldn't be happening. I should be getting something different. I deserve better. And we blame Him. Scripture says he tempts no one. Scripture also says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. God is never wanting us to stumble, to screw up, to fall away. God's not laughing at us when we screw up. You know, we may do it. Somebody gets pie in their face and, or something bad happens and we may laugh at that. God never does. God is always loving. He's perfect in every way. Jesus was perfect in every way. He sympathizes where we're going through the trial. So when we're going through that trial, when we're going even going through the temptation, we're not going through it alone. Jesus is there. We can turn to him and say, Jesus, help me. Help me to love you more, Jesus. Let me turn to you. Let me see you in the midst of this. Let me cling close to you. Why does God allow those things? Those temptations that are temptations are also things that can be trials by the Lord because he wants to know what will we choose, to rely on our own thinking or turn to God? How, much, how, how many of us rely much of the time on our own thinking? That's not God's intent. His intent is, I want you to focus on me. Turn to me. Yeah, you don't like it because you're temporally focused. I'm tempted every time my focus is on the temporal. When my focus is on the eternal, I don't usually have very much temptation at all. 
James, you mentioned that the, the enemy, there's no question the enemy uses the temptations within us. There's no question. He's smart, he's been around, and he knows the kind of bait. But bait only works if you like it. If you're not attracted to it, if you're a good fisherman, you know you have to have the right kind of bait for the right kind of fish. Satan knows exactly our bait, but you still have a choice of whether to bite. The fish doesn't. Kind of instinct on their part, but we do. Okay? And the enemy will do that, because it says in John 10.10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I love what Jesus says right after that. I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. So when we're struggling, when we have a problem, the biggest problem we have is we're not really spending enough time with the Lord, not seeking Him earnestly, not surrendering to Him. We want, I want my cake and eat it too. I want to dally with that temptation thinking that it won't burn me. You can't handle that fire without getting burning coals in your hands. Can't, can't happen. And God wants a deeper level surrender. This is something important for us. God is continually asking us for a deeper level of trust and surrender to Him. It's the lie did that. I'm okay. Look what I'm doing now. He goes, yeah, that's good. And I want you to go here. And then I want you to go here. It's a continual growth to make why? To make us more like Christ. To make us more like Jesus. To complete the good work He began. He's the author, the finisher of our faith. He's trying to finish our faith. So he allows those challenges, he allows those temptations to become trials for him because what he wants is, are you going to trust in yourself and seek your own satisfaction? Or are you going to turn towards me? So then, my beloved brethren, verse 19, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There's different stories. Uh, one a Greek, another Indian philosopher taught God gave us two years better to listen with only one mouth to speak. But there's much in Scripture that talks about the attitude we have to be to hearing well to mean cautious in our speaking. Let's look at Proverbs. First, Proverbs 10.19, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. I remember a quote I like. It speaks a lot to me. It's better to keep one's mouth shut and let people wonder if you're a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. So, that's a challenge. It's a challenge for me. Sometimes I speak a little bit too much out of turn, trying to do better. But, God is saying, listen more, speak less. Proverbs 13, 3, He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. And more to what I just said earlier about a fool. In Proverbs 17:28, even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. Proverbs 29:20. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than him. But this is a good one for all of us. Proverbs 22, verses 24 to 25. Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways. And start up there. Lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. My father was angry when I grew up. He would explode at times. And so I learned that from him. And I 
was angry a lot when I was younger. Before Christ, I was angry. Just my default, when frustrated, <laughs> get angry. Didn't hit, but just angry. And I realized it was a learned behavior. And it talks about that. It's learned. You get it from what you're around. If you grew up in a family where cursing is second nature, it's going to be often your nature to curse. It says, you lie down with dogs who wake up with fleas. The company you keep makes a difference to the type of character you have. That doesn't mean you shouldn't evangelize. But ultimately, when push comes to shove, you need to choose company that points you towards Jesus. That helps you build a character in yourself. In this case, you have to be on guard to what you learn. If you're hanging around, this is a deception, we think. We can just hang around with those people because I'm trying to share Jesus with them when they're actually influencing us more than we're having a difference with them. Please be mindful for that. I want you to take a look at Proverbs 15.1. This is the attitude we should have. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Something I learned the hard way. Um, my wife used to be very good with my daughter. You know, my daughter's teenager. You know, you just get into these power struggles, and you know, just who was right. And I felt I was right, and she felt she was right, and we'd just be we'd keep raising our voices. And it was contentious. My wife spoke softly, and was able to diffuse that. Praise God, I learned that from her, and I'm able to do a lot of that. That my first instinct, I noticed that within myself, that it could have got escalated because we disagree about certain things politically. And a soft answer, oh, finding common ground and making peace makes a huge difference. It says repeatedly, it takes two people to make an argument. If we're harsh, we will raise contention. Psalm 141, 3 to 4. This is what David asked of God. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing to practice wicked works. We can ask God for help. When we're asking for wisdom, we can ask God, help me to say the right thing that offers life and blessing instead of contention and death. Because ultimately, death also is evil. Now, there's a time that you can be angry in the right spirit. It doesn't say, never have wrath. Slow to wrath. Okay? The wrath of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. There is godly wrath. Jesus exhibited that in the temple when he turned over the tables of the, of the ones who were exchanging money for doves and pigeons. But his focus was always on what made a difference eternally and what God's word said. So there's times in what's happening publicly you may have to raise some contention. But you're always doing it for God's glory and for His name. Not doing it for the, your man or your reasoning. Now, I encourage you to be careful about that. Sometimes we get carried away. Most of us do. So if that's your intent, please seek counsel. Wisdom seeks counsel. Let's move on to verse 21. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So everything that we talked about, all filthiness, all wickedness. So he says, all this is connected. Our focus, our content, if we're temporally focused, if we're focused on what we want, we're going to get in contention. We're going to get angry. We're going to get frustrated. If we talk politics about where things are, if we talk about anything of this, whether you like a certain um, 
sports team or anything like that. You can get into contention. He's saying, I want you to be more eternally focused and not get into contention. But anything that's earthly and that's temporal in this regard, he describes, therefore, filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. This is from the um, New King James and some of the modern translations. The King James used the word superfluidity of naughtiness. And basically it means it just kind of pours over and spreads everywhere. Okay, you ever have a toilet back up on you? Okay, if you ever have a toilet back up on you, okay, especially when you've done your business and you're trying to get the plunger, but it doesn't happen, you flush, and then it overflows, and that stuff gets everywhere. It gets everywhere. And it's a mess. And it stinks everything up. That's kind of the image I want you to have. That's what happens with our wickedness. Instead, it says, receive with meekness. Meekness, the implanted word. The word meekness here, the Greek word is praates, P-R-A-U-T-E-S. And it talks about the perfect conquest and control of everything in a man's nature, which would be a hindrance to his seeing, learning, and obeying the truth. So I love what it talks about here, and this is um, from Clark. The teachable spirit is docile and tractable, and therefore humble enough to learn. The teachable spirit is without resentment and without anger, and is therefore able to face the truth even when it hurts and condemns. The teachable spirit is not blinded by its own overmastering prejudices, but is clear-eyed to the truth. The teachable spirit is not seduced by laziness, but is so self-controlled that it can willingly and faithfully accept the discipline of learning. All of that's wrapped up in that word meekness. It's a whole lot there. But you see how it, everything ties in together? It talks about the attitude and disposition you have. A teachable person is, not, is going to be slow to anger and wrath. He's going to listen well. He's not going to learn. He's going to realize he doesn't know everything. He's going to presume that his knowledge is insufficient. And there's something with somebody else that what the Lord has to speak to him particularly, but also through the counsel of others, is going to be a blessing to him. He's willing to continue to allow himself to grow and is earnest. There's not mention that meekness. It's not a passive thing. I'm meek. I'm just kind of like a doormat. That's not what it's about. It's a passion to go, I'm going to lay myself down in my desires because I want to know this Savior of mine more intimately. This God of the universe who knows everything, who knows exponentially more than myself, I know very little about. I want to know more about Him. And in any place that He's speaking through anybody else that I can do that, I want to avail myself of it. I want to avail myself of it. So, he's talking about that. Look at that. The implanted word. The word of God, which is what? Able to save your souls. It's a pretty strong message. As I've shared before, our sin is not in isolation. Whenever we sin, it affects the entire cosmos. All sin does. That's why Jesus had to do that. So my sin affects my relationship with God. It affects my relationship, obviously, with myself. It affects my relationship with those in the household with me, with my family. It affects my church community. It affects the neighborhood. It affects everything. But there's a converse to that, too. As I'm surrendered to the Lord and seeking Him, as I'm earnest and meek and humble, it also has an effect. It definitely positively affects my relation with God that I can receive things. It affects my relation with myself. I don't, I'm not despairing, anxious, worrying, and fretful. It affects my relationship with my family. They're encouraged and they can tell. There's a spirit that's different. There's a spirit that's holy, that's righteous, that's pure, that's lovely, that's gentle. Just as Jesus was. 
It affects my church. It affects my community. If we have more godly men willing to come, lay aside filthiness and the superfluity of naughtiness or wickedness, receive the meekness. Receive with meekness, sorry. Receive with meekness. But a meekness that is actually strong. Strong in the Lord. Confident that He's going to finish His good work in us because we're trusting in Him. I need your help. I need your help, Jesus. I need your help. Every time there's a temptation, child, I need your help. I can't do this. No, you can't. No, we can't. We can't do this walk without Jesus. Not one moment of one day. And the more we're God-dependent, God-reliant, the more He will work through us. He wants to. He's that good. So verse 20-25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he is, or was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So, just like Jesus had the disciples, we have a teacher. So it says, what's our teacher here? The Word. The law of liberty. The perfect law of liberty. That's what the Word is. It is the perfect law of liberty. For whom the Son is set free is free indeed. It's the liberty to go that we're, we're no longer bound by the law because we're now under grace. That's what that means. Okay? And so... By grace, you're motivated by what? By love. So if you're motivated by love, you're going to act out of that. Love is not passive. Love is active. And that's going to have us do love actions. As Jesus loved us, love others. So we do do that. But the more we do that out of that love, Motivated not because of our own self-worth, our own self-esteem, or our own glory, but out of the profound gratitude. Profound gratitude for what Jesus did with us, or did for us, and is doing in us. He's still doing in us. He did for us and doing in us. Then we're going to act out of that. And so if you're not doing it, it's like you don't even know what Jesus did for you. You don't know what you've been saved from. How could you not do it? You have lots of Christians who have great educated knowledge about what Christ is, but they really, you wonder if they really have a relationship because they're not acting out of it. Now, that doesn't mean those works that you do are going to earn your way into God's graces. That's not what it's about. It's going to be because you're motivated out of love. It's different. Islam is all these actions, many other religions, all these things you have to do to get in God's good book. That's not Christianity. God's already done it for us. Every bit of it. All of it. We don't fully comprehend all He's done for us. Part of that wisdom is to comprehend and understand more and more, and then you become what? Profoundly more grateful. The one who's been forgiven much loves much. When we take a hold of we've been forgiven for everything. We all deserve hell, not anywhere close to heaven. And we not only have heaven, we get to be in the inner core with Him. We become His sons, His children. We're elevated higher than angels. You win the big lottery. That's the reward. So, how could we not in this temporal time, this time of mist, vapor that will vanish quickly, not do all things for him. That's the motivation that he's trying to get. That's what James is trying to impress. So, the perfect law of liberty, right? 
the Greek language for that, who looks into, is a word using, is actually means penetrating examination. So it's an intense examination. And we're called to examine ourselves to see if we're walking in the faith. So how do we develop that faith? And I've shared before Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The more we allow the Word of God to percolate to us, the more we're earnestly asking God to reveal Himself to it, the more it has a chance to change and transform us. It increases our faith. It focuses on the eternal. And what else is the Word? Let me tell you some characters of the Word. So when it increases our faith, what else can that same Word do? Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is the discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. So it's a sword. What else are the word? Psalm 119, 105. It is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So that same word lights me right now but also shows me what's coming ahead. Prepares for me for what's coming ahead. What else is that word? Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? So that word consumes us. It changes us. It burns away that dross. It also has to break through the hardness of us. Sometimes it has to give us a wallop to knock, our, to knock us back on the track. And as men... This is especially those who are husbands. In Ephesians 5, 25, 26, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. So the word is like water that washes your wives clean. What else is the word? One last one I have. First Peter 2, 2. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. It is our sustenance. It is our life. We cannot grow spiritually apart from it. So I want you to understand that law of liberty is what's written in transform the heart. There's a value that word does all of those things. The more we esteem and value that word, the more we just choose, like to say, I will not let the word depart from me. The more our lives are transformed to be like Jesus. The more we'll act out of that. All that's connected. But we'll be listening more. We'll be slow to speak, slow to wrath. We'll be acting more in love. All those things that James is talking about is interconnected. So he juxtaposes that in verse 26, 27. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So, the term religious in the New Testament is not used favorably. Use the Pharisees are religious. Religious means basically follow a form. James saying, we talk about slow to speak. Talks about bridling your tongue. But until you taper really cautiously, restrain your speech. Who has spoken out of turn? I have. I said boneheaded things? Way too many. Has my tongue caused harm because of an outburst? Because I thought it was a cutesy remark? But it actually hurt somebody? Yes. Bridle as a horse's bridle basically restrains. Doesn't mean the tongue can't speak. It speaks cautiously, slowly, always a blessing, motivated by love. Trying to edify, right? Building others up according to their needs. In Ephesians 4.29, right? That's what the tongue does. 
But if you don't do it, you deceive yourself. So if you're somebody who's just rash and speaking all the time out of turn and not doing it, you're deceiving yourself. And then he follows it with this. He says, what is a pure religion? Something that's pure and undefined has two aspects. One, you're unspotted from the world. That means your world doesn't have a hold of you. It doesn't, your motivation is not divided. You're not double-minded, worldly sold and godly sold. You're singularly sold on eternity. You're in the world, but not of the world. You don't let it influence your desires and passions. I'm not there yet. I still want some things of the world. I want some of the amenities the world has to offer. We have to watch that. I'm not saying you can't enjoy some amenities, but it can't have a hold of you. So you have to be unspotted. Wow. That's what something pure is. That's the process what Jesus is getting us, that we can become unspotted. But he has another one. is visit orphans and widows in their troubles. All through the Old Testament and even the New, Jesus mentions in the Old Testament, talks about in, in the need for visiting those who are downtrodden. And both the orphans and widows were those who do not have the strength to meet their own needs. It would include the infirmed, include the sick, those who cannot help themselves. So when you see somebody suffering, if Jesus talked about it, you see somebody living on the cloak, on, hand them a cloak. You know, if, you, if they're hunger, you don't say, hey, go, be well. That's not what you say. I'm here to help you. What do you need? That doing, everything James is talking about, that action, is if you have that love, you're going to seek the need. You may not be aware, but once you're made aware, you've got to do something about it. Now, we see that exercise here beautifully. I mean, Brian's meeting and, and, and doing, you know, meeting with Joseph. And while he's not officially an orphan, he is kind of orphaned. There are many of us who have done who have seen people of need and helped them in their need and helping those who are suffering. Some of you don't have, didn't have support. A widow often doesn't have support. The husband's family, husband's gone, they may not have that support. So if you see people who need support, here to help. Motivated to love. Clark says, true religion does not merely give something for the relief of the distressed, but it visits them. It takes the oversight of them. It takes them under its care. And the word here is episcopacy, where we get the word episcopal from, bishop. It means overseeing. It basically means, I take part of your burden for me. It goes to their houses and speaks to their hearts. It relieves their wants. It sympathizes with them in their distresses instructs them in divine things and recommends them to God. And all this is it does for the Lord's sake. This is the religion of Christ. So, I love why he says that, because it's when you're meeting people with needs, you are addressing the physical. But ultimately, your focus is always on the eternal. Their suffering, how can I point them towards Jesus? Because he relieves all our suffering. He's the one who gives us peace. So, yes, we meet the physical needs and we bring the message of salvation to let them know there's a God who absolutely loves them, who cares for them, who will be a husband to the widowers who don't have a husband, who will be a father and a mother to the orphans who don't have one, just as he has been for us. Okay. So, I covered a lot. We'll talk a little bit more about James 2 next week. Um, let's, um, let's close with prayer. God, I thank you for the men listening. Um, Father, I pray that the word went forth in a way that's meaningful. I don't feel very comfortable with it, but it's not my feelings that matter, Lord. I know you're an amazingly good God, and you can take something, something small and make it something big. So, Father, whatever word that needs to be spoken forth that changes men to make us more like you, it's worthwhile, Lord. Help us to love you more, to trust you more, to seek you more diligently, to delve into your word, to bless and serve others, to glorify you in all things. 
Because Jesus, you deserve it all. In your name. Amen. Thanks, guys.